Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Rewatchability. It's the podcast where we rewatch old movies and see how they hold up in a modern light and sometimes even resonate according to current events like oh. this one, perhaps. <laughs> We'll talk about it. I'm Robert Larone. With me, as always, is... J.M. McNabb. And we have a special guest. Oh, we should say that Blaine is not here today. I don't know what happened to him. Killed, perhaps, by a person in a cheap Halloween mask. I, I think he's on vacation. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, you know, It's one of the two. It was one of those. I knew it. But today, replacing him, effectively, is our old pal, Alex West. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for coming on. This is like my home away from podcast home. Yeah. Well, you can't, you can't stay here. Yeah. No? We're in a small It's so room. nice here. <laughs> this is kind of air-conditioned. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we should mention you're from the Faculty of Horror podcast, obviously. I mean, I think the listeners know by this For point. Sure. But you also have a new book you're plugging. That's right. You didn't just come here to see us. Oh, I forgot to mention author Alexandra West. Yeah, two-time author. I think you need another pair of glasses now. Every time you write a book, you get a new pair of glasses. An author gets yeah. their glasses when they write a novel. That's how Tom Wolfe died. His neck snapped from all the glasses on his face. I thought it was the hat. <laughs> yeah, I have a new book just came out. And it's called The 1990s Teen Horror Cycle, Final Girls, and a New Hollywood Formula. So I'm talking about horror films that are based in kind of teen studio films, everything from the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie to Scream to Fear to I Know What You Did Last oh, wait, Summer. Wait, what was that faculty. one you said? Scream? Scream! It just so happens we're talking about Scream 3 today. What? So this like directly ties into your book. That's crazy, guys. Except that it was released in the year 2000. Well, I was wondering because you picked this movie. Mm. I haven't read your book yet because uh, I'm still I'm we still sent our advanced copy. Yeah. yeah, that's true. We weren't <laughs> like, you know, when like Mark Maron hasn't watched the movie and it's like because he didn't yeah. get a screener and then they have an awkward conversation <laughs> about it. Oh, yeah. He like really hurt Darren Aronofsky's feelings. <laughs> <laughs> but would you say this movie kind of like is the end of that 90s horror thing because it kind of oh, killed yeah. the franchise briefly. And... Oh, see, we can talk about that later. Okay. But I do, I have a kind of wrap-up chapter of the 90s and I include films off the top of my head. There's films like uh, Final Destination, Cherry Falls, and something else. But they all come out in 2000. So I, I kind of generally wrap it up and the production had to have happened in 1999. So you've got okay. a lot of this story production stuff going yeah. on in 1999. So even though it's released in 2000, new millennium, sure. I'm just going to make the argument. These things take time. These things take time, guys. Except for, I mean, they were literally writing this <laughs> while they were filming. So yeah. maybe it didn't yes. take time. And I find Scream 3 to be really fascinating. I actually really like all the entries in this franchise. And I'm a, I'm a big Scream head. Right. And Is that how you refer to yourselves? Yeah. I think it's just me. I'm, I'm the only Scream head. <laughs> so all the people that didn't want to like Jimmy Buffett anymore yeah. <laughs> and adopted Scream as the thing to worship. Yeah. It's just me and my cats. We're the Scream heads. <laughs> 
They don't even know what it is. Yeah. And so I think each entry adds something to the franchise and the history and the narrative of Sydney Prescott and all her buddies. And I think Scream 3 is kind of unfairly maligned. I, I think there are a lot of weaknesses to it, but I also think there's a lot of ambition in it that I actually think it's kind of great. And I don't think you, you always get to see a lot of, particularly in like franchise slasher films. So, um, and again, particularly, I'm, I'm finding there's a bit of a rediscovery with this film in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein allegations, right. the Mean Too movement. Who was a producer on this film? Ironically enough, yes, this is a dimension film. And even though Disney owns Miramax now, the Weinsteins have retained dimension films. Right. I'm sure it's going to be huge. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone wants to get into bed with those guys. No, they don't. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, but there are, as we'll get into when we talk about the movie, there are some weird meta layers of uh, the Weinstein awfulness kind of permeate into this movie. Yeah. Perhaps knowingly? I don't know. I, I'm curious about that because there, there's a strange production history to this film. As you guys have already alluded to, there's strange narrative stuff that is super yeah. parallel to what was going on. And didn't like half the actors die? What? Oh, maybe that's in the film. Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's so meta. I get confused. It's the scream well, curse. All the actors who made this movie uh, died in the movie. They're characters. It's, it's a curse. Spooky. Well, I mean, you know, when they started shooting this, David Arquette and Courtney Cox were newly married and now they're divorced. That is like oh. a death. That's a death. Being married that's to David Arquette. Okay. Wait, what? <laughs> when did they divorce? Before this movie? No, after. Oh, after. So they, I think they just gotten divorced before Scream Four. Oh, oh that's right, because they weren't. Yeah, that's got to be awkward. Yeah, it's got to yeah. be super awkward. Like, David, have you yeah. signed those custody papers? Where's my prenup? <laughs> Though it's, it does seem like in every movie they're estranged for some reason, and in yeah. every movie they come back together. And it's like, guys, it's not going to work. Like, yeah. they just can't make it work. Okay, well. Before we get into Scream 3, the screams go to Hollywood, we should first of all thank our Patreons. Those are the folks who give us one, three, five dollars a month. They help us keep this podcast going, so it just, it's a good thing. No, it's, it's awesome. I've noticed the lights are on this time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, we went to Ikea after the last Patreon check cleared. Yeah. Also, I just use it for a murdering, so... <laughs> it's, we mainly spend it on lamps and like those vocal vocoder things. Oh what it's called? yeah, I love those. Those are like the Deus Ex Machina of these films. Oh, we'll get into that because <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah. this one takes this a leap to a crazy level. I also want to mention our screening. Uh, yeah. We're presenting. We'll be in person at the Royal Cinema in Toronto, July fourth. No holograms. <laughs> what? <laughs> Well, I mean, like, you know, when celebrities die, they bring them back with holograms. You think you're a celebrity? You think you're dead? (laughs) One of those. None of this is real. We're going to be there. We're going to be presenting a very special screening of one of our favorite summer movies, My Girl, starring Anna Klumski, Macaulay Culkin, Dan Aykroyd, and Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. So come out to that. You can find links to buy tickets at the Royal's website, theroyal.to. Yeah. Scream 3. So we are skipping over Scream 2. We should also mention, we've never talked about Scream 2. We talked about the original Scream with you. And, folks, you can go and listen to that on iTunes. It's right there for you to listen to. Oh, yeah. That's another thing uh, we didn't mention is our whole back catalog is on Apple Podcasts now. Or anywhere you get podcasts, I guess. Anywhere. Maybe not. No. It's there, though, somewhere. But, Yeah. yeah, you can find the Scream podcast with Alex. Yeah. And you can't find a Scream 2 one, though, because we just <laughs> we just leapfrogged right Didn't over that do movie. It. Didn't do it. Do you no. have a Jerry O'Connell allergy, or why, why did we skip that one? <laughs> I, you know, I just wanted to give Scream 3 some love, and, okay. I, and I think it's probably more fun and more interesting to talk about and riff on. But, you know, Cole's notes on Scream 2, Sydney Prescott and friends go to university. Oh. And, oh, shit, it doesn't always work out so well. Oh. And, uh, so, they dropped out after two years like me. <laughs> <laughs> That's we, not true. We did I our master's degree together. <laughs> How I know. did you get there? I was just sleeping in the oh. student lounge. Yeah, and, and so the trust issues Sydney had at the end of the first film are even more compacted and overt. So by the time she gets to Scream 3 and everyone else gets to Scream 3, they're not only a kind of solidified ragtag group of friends, they've also experienced shit ton of trauma yeah 
trauma will really bring you together, especially like murderers. Yeah. I mean, surviving them because all your friends are dead. So you got to make new ones. Well, the core group never really gets. Well, actually, as we'll get into some of the some of the characters that have been around since the first one do get offed. Right, right. Alex, you're our guest. Why don't you tell us when you first saw Scream 3? I saw it in 2000 when it came out in theaters. You were you were camped out the night before. I was like, they were like, primed. this isn't necessary. Yeah, and I was like, no, I'm here. Why? Why are you trying to get me to move? No, it was. I remember being disappointed watching it because it felt really jokey. Right. I think around minute like 20, when Jay and Silent Bob show up, I was like, yeah. I don't know what this is. But then it's one that I've kind of come back to in probably the last, I don't know, five or six years. As I started thinking about this topic a bit more seriously and went and revisited, and and I I think it's got a lot of meat there that's, again, funny and weird, but also has something oddly very intriguing to say. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Jam? Did you see this one? I did. I think this was the first Scream I got to see in the theaters because I may have mentioned this on the other Scream podcast, but I tried to see Scream 2 and got thrown out twice at two different theaters because it was rated R by like an usher who was probably two years older than me. (laughs) So this was the first time I was like of the right age. You felt like a big boy. That's right. I think this actually had like a less severe rating. You can go home, dad. (laughs) So I was able to go – well, the, you know, we've, I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but the ratings in Toronto at that time were all kind of weird. Mm-hmm. So it, we didn't have the American system. So if something was rated R, it was quite severe. Yeah. And you couldn't even go see it with like your parent or guardian or, uh, you know, a random person over the age of 18 <laughs> that he enlisted to take you. You could uh, only see movies rated Maple Leaf. <laughs> but I think this one was rated that if you were over 14 – you right. can go see. Yeah, it's a 14A. Yeah. So I was probably, I, I don't know how old, I was probably like 16 or 15. I don't remember when I was born. So I was super happy to go see like a screen movie in the theater. And uh, I did not like it very much Ooh. because of the same reason. To be honest, it was the same as soon as Jay and Silent Bob showed up. Right. Because yeah. it happened so early. Yeah. Like maybe it's like at the end, once you were invested, they showed up, you could kind of get past it. But right. To like wrap everything up. Yeah. <laughs> Pull Yo, off the, the mask. Ki- the killer's your half brother. <laughs> Jay. Right, Silent Bob, tell him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I did watch it a few years later on DVD and and enjoy it more. Realizing yeah. going into it, knowing that it was going to yes. be a bit of a goof, but I, I never like really liked it that much. I did like Scream Four when I saw it. Yeah. I thought that actually had a bit more to say than any of the other sequels. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I, again, I don't think it's the best made film, but in terms of what it has to say thematically, it, it's yeah. it's super interesting. Yeah, whereas yeah. like – especially in terms of like the what are we talking about from the meta perspective in this one felt so like – we're talking about trilogies. It's just yeah. so – like right. And the rules of – we'll get into it, but the rules of what like the trilogy movie should yeah. be are so flimsy and – yeah. Don't really apply to many movies at all. Yeah, like how many horror trilogies were there? Like solid horror trilogies in 2000. I can't think of any. They all There would have been way too many that. Nightmare on Elm Streets, yeah. way too many Halloweensies, too many Friday the 13th. So did you call them Halloweensies? <laughs> yeah, that's the plural of Halloween. You haven't seen the <laughs> Halloweensies movies? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, by the time we see, like, you know, we'll get into this, but the videotape of Randy outlining the rules, the movies he's referencing are like Return of the Jedi. Yeah, like Lord of the Rings. Is that, was that out then? <laughs> well, it was just such a big get to get Jamie Kennedy at Ninja that Turtles? stage. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that too. The posthumous Jamie Kennedy. Oh, what? God. Oh, not, not in the movie. <laughs> Can I just say I read His on greatest like, experiment was death. Sorry. I read today on like IMDb trivia that from that sequence of shooting with Jamie Kennedy, they had like 12 hours of footage. There's <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Oh, shit. Maybe it's like two hours, but something ridiculous. Still way too much Jamie that Kennedy. That they cut down for like two minutes worth of screen time. Well, Could I, you imagine being that like <laughs> second unit director just like trapped there? And Jamie Kennedy is so excited about craft service. He's so excited yeah. to be around people. It's like a drug dealer. It's just like in an apartment. Like, hey, you guys don't have to leave. You know, we can we can hang out longer. Yeah. yeah. You guys ever heard of the Jamie Kennedy's? <laughs> I have like all the DVDs. <laughs> what about you, Rob? Did you see this in the theater also? I did not. I saw it, I think, later. I saw part of it. I don't even think I saw the whole thing. Like, it looked very ridiculous. I had a 
David Arquette phobia. I think I still do. I can't really take him seriously, though I do like Ready to Rumble. I have a soft spot in my heart for that. But no, I mean, I like him as a person. I'm, I don't know. I don't know. He's how a I great feel. person. <laughs> but so, and the, also, what yeah. What has he done? <laughs> is he like a humanitarian? <laughs> you know, it's just that he gets such flack because Courtney Cox is clearly like out of his league. He's like such a schmuck. And uh, well, now I think you're being a little yeah. too hard on him. <laughs> now I feel bad for him. <laughs> You, you didn't go see that production of Sherlock Holmes he was oh, in. I oh, I saw that. God. Oh, really? I did. I left it intermission. <laughs> right? See? He's a schmuck. And I got free tickets. And I got free tickets from a colleague of mine at the time who was – and they were all making fun of it. They were all making fun of the production and I felt so bad that I You think maybe it was Ghostface? <laughs> I don't know. Who am I, Sherlock Holmes? Oh, shit, I am. It was just really sad because it was actually a really physical show. Like, it was, they, right. were doing, they were actually trying to do something really cool and absurd yeah. And with it was it. also, like, didn't the original director pass away And I actually that? worked with that director. Right. Um, yeah, I worked with him in Montreal. Lovely man. Oh. Um, I was going to make a joke, and then as soon as you said that, no, I had to, like, put the brakes on. I don't dear, think it was David Arquette in the Montreal version. No, it was Jay Baruchel, I think. Cool. Well, I like him more. Yeah. Me too. But anyway, it's it's a very like kind of physical, crazy production, and David Arquette just looked winded the oh, whole man. time, and I was just like, "Dewey, you can do it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It didn't help, and I left it intermission. But yeah. I'm sure he got a paycheck. Yeah. Well, anyway, so Scream wasn't my favorite franchise. That whole genre sort of just passed me by. And I heard about the Jay and Silent Bob thing. I think I was a bigger Jay and Silent Bob (laughs) fan at the time than I was a Scream fan. So I think that was actually incentive to check it out. But it did seem ridiculous. So I didn't really. This is my first time seeing it all the way through. So I was I was a bit bewildered when you suggested it. But now I, I see where you're going. And I think there's a lot to talk about with Scream 3. Well, let's get into it. You want to do a rundown of the plot? Huh. Okay. So don't get winded like David Arquette. <laughs> <laughs> so it starts with the Hollywood sign. And we have Lee Schreiber. He's just oh, driving. to join me. <laughs> I didn't know what you were singing first. I assumed it would be some sort of new metal classic from the Screen 3 tr- oh. soundtrack. The, the remix of Red Right Hand they play. Oh, God. Well, that's it's not actually so on the soundtrack. Creed. Oh, really? No, yeah. it's in the third one. Well, so it doesn't come on the CD. Oh, no, it's probably not on the CD. Yeah. But we have Lee Schreiber. He's, like, driving back from his talk show, and he's talking on two cell phones at the same time because, you know, Hollywood, am I right? I am. But he gets a call from his girlfriend who is being attacked by the ghost face killer. And then, so he like races back. I hadn't, I mean, he's in the other movies, right? He's in yeah, the second Yeah, so uh, Leah Schreiber plays Cotton Weary, who's Sidney Prescott. He was wrongfully accused. accused. Wrongfully yeah. accused. Right. And now he's got this TV show because he was exonerated in Scream 2 and it's called 100% Cotton. Right. Yeah, and he's wearing Which like a, a white suit. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently that was like a joke they had in the editing suite of Scream 2. They were like, what do you think Cotton Weary does after this? And they're like, he has a show called 100% Cotton, and that made it into the movie somehow. I also read today that Leif Schreiber wanted to take his jacket off during the sequence because he'd been working out so much. <laughs> like, the more I read about – and I like Leif Schreiber, but the oh, more yeah. I read about him, the more he sounds like kind of a dull. That explains like the topless bitch. season of Ray Donovan. <laughs> Every parent's favorite show. <laughs> Yeah, I have no idea what that show's about. I know. Everyone's parrot watches it. (laughs) (laughs) So he, like, races back because he knows how urgent this thing is because if somebody's calling about a killer, it's probably a killer if you've experienced a killer. So he races back and his girlfriend gets killed and he gets killed and everyone dies. And it's kind of shocking because he was, like – he was a big part of Scream 2, yeah, at least. Like, yeah. And he'd been there since the original. And and he was, like, really coming into his own as as an actor and celebrity. and. Thespian. Yeah. And they almost kind of like lucked into him Mm -hmm. in a way because he doesn't talk in Scream 1. No, you just see him on like a news report footage. Yeah. Yeah. So like they just happen to have kind of fallen ass backwards and having this really good actor be part of the mythology. Mm. And then they just kill him off. And give him the show 100% Cotton. (laughs) I mean, it sort of sets the tone for the rest of the movie. You're like, it's, you know, with the Hollywood sign and the 100% Cotton. Like, it's silly. Yes. But also, there's a lot of stabbing. 
And that's also the name of the movie that they're working on later in the film, Stab. Yeah. And the movie is weird, too, because we saw the first Stab movie mm-hmm. in Scream 2. Yeah. Right. That so was already established. Yeah. And so this is Stab 3, so they can get some commentary on you know, a third movie. Right. But then everything in the movie, because we actually go behind the scenes of the movie, which, you know, we just saw it very briefly in, in Scream 2. But we go behind the scenes of the movie and everything in the movie is like the first Scream. Yeah. You right. know, like the house, the characters are dressed like they were in the first Scream. I was very confused about how these stab movies When the progressed. sequel doesn't work, you well, go back to the basics. Well, except in the first Scream film in Sydney Prescott's room, she has a poster of the Indigo Girls. In this thing she's basically in the same bedroom but there's a poster of creed i noticed that oh fuck off there's so much creed in this film yeah i guess they were on the soundtrack the other weird thing about that is whoever the production designer is like because these movies don't have to be that like authentic but like has replicated every toy on her shelf and like the exact same sheets of her bedroom for basically no reason unless she happened to wander on the set which she does (laughs) except for that one thing he's like no Creed. (laughs) (laughs) She's over the Indigo Girls. (laughs) The studio was like, we got a heteronormative this Indigo Girls. That could be like... It's too edgy. Yeah, this is 2000. Yeah, we got to go nice and safe right down the middle of the road. Christian Rock. Christian Rock. But like, it would have made more sense if they hadn't had that gag where there was a stab movie in Scream 2, then this could have been a movie of the first Yeah, yeah because it does kind of fuck with the timelines. But I guess... It yeah. is interesting that it is playing with, like, the franchise idea because it, it is one step further than just they made a movie of it. And, like, the horror franchise, it is, like, a thing to contend with. And this movie also, you know, it's not only contending with the tropes of within the story, but also it's contending with all the tropes of it as it tries to be a successful film. Like, the first thing is that the main star of the first two films didn't want to come to the set very often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, maybe I think, we should talk about that. Yeah, so, I mean, well, eventually it gets to her part of the story. I mean, first there's, like, a whole bunch with David Arquette and Courtney Cox. Gail Weathers is her character's mm-hmm. name. She's, like, giving a talk where she's like, you gotta be bloodthirsty as a journalist to make it. And then they go to this stab set and David Arquette is working there as a consultant. And then we finally get a glimpse of Sidney Prescott, Nev Campbell, the person we've all come to see, and she's, like, living on a farm with a dog, <laughs> just sort of doing her thing. I mean, you know, she's got like a knife sort of life carved out for her. She's doing something meaningful. Pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. This is why I can't be around trauma victims. <laughs> well, she's also, she's like working on like a helpline, right? Yeah, yeah, like the California Women's Crisis Counseling Line. Yeah. But do and, people do that from home typically? Or would she be like in um, a call center? I'm sure seemed... you could do it yeah. remotely. Yeah, with VoIP. Voice over internet protocol, baby. Well, and remember in the first scream, she goes on the internet to contact 911. Yeah. That's right. So maybe this is a parallel universe with more advanced technology. You can get 911 on the internet? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. That would have saved a life last night. (laughs) I kind of loved how... I love how we just gloss over Rob's casual allusions to actual murders that have happened. Someday in some his personal life. detective is going to listen to one of these podcasts and tie it all together. Perhaps David Arquette, the world's greatest detective. Oh, I kind of just want him to get a win. I'll show him I was good in Sherlock Holmes. Oh. He, you know, I was watching like a bunch of the behind the scenes videos about this movie. He truly does not seem to give a shit. No, I don't no. about him. No, I think he's fine. He's cool. Like, I think he's a cool dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but so Sydney, yeah, we, Nev Campbell basically said she only wanted to shoot for three weeks or yep. something. Yeah. And she, cause she was doing Party of Five still yeah, and stuff. Yeah, and something else that required her to have like streaks in her hair. I don't know if it was Wild Things. It might oh, have been Wild oh. Things. I think it was, uh, what's that movie? Oh, no, uh, it was, uh, Drowning Mona. Yes. Yeah. There we go. The, right. With Bette Midler. Yeah. Yeah. Which, does not stand the test of time, I'm guessing. We won't do that in the podcast. We'll just skip ahead and no one watch that. <laughs> okay. But, yeah, I mean, she's she seems like she's not quite over the events of the last two Scream movies where I guess a whole bunch of her friends died and her mom also died because she keeps on, like, hearing these voices. And even at one point, 
she has a vision of her mom evil deading outside of her window. Can we talk about this dream <laughs> sequence for a minute? Yes. Because but not in detail. It's kind of gruesome and scary. I mean, she's like a it's zombie. It's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. And it's directed by the guy who, you know, made dream sequences iconic in modern horror films. Right. I mean, Wes Craven, like Mr. Nightmare on yeah. Elm Street. And you think Freddy had something to do with that? <laughs> <laughs> Cameo. <laughs> Cameo, bitch. Jesus. It's like That's you have that how boat he <laughs> I, you know, as much as I, I like to jump in there and defend this film because, as I've already sure. said, I think it's pretty fun in a lot of ways. I, this, this, this sequence is indefensible. It is so bad. It is so bad yeah. and awkward and weird and unnecessary, I think, in some ways. Yeah. Because it's literally like they had the actress playing her mother roll around in the dirt a little bit and just kind of like <laughs> stagger to a window. It's such a shitty scare and it feels really unearned and it just looks cheap and awful. I, I I hate it. I yeah, hate it. it's pretty. It's pretty bad. And like, also, all of the voices that she keeps on, like you know, she yeah. keeps hearing these mystical voices. At one point, it seems like it says something like, "Your mom's no Sharon Stone." That's I swear from the to first God. film. Is yeah, that yeah. from the first film? Yeah, yeah it's uh, oh, Matthew Lillard says that. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I guess it makes sense like, now. <laughs> <laughs> I should have thought that was like something they really wanted to say in this movie. That's an odd joke. It's <laughs> a weird reference. Because we later find out that she's an actress. Is that established in the first film? No. No, okay. no, no. That was all added. Yeah. Right. Okay. The weirdest part of this film is that, okay, so a bunch of murders happen while she's off doing her women's crisis counseling thing. And her dad also, there's a weird scene with her dad because her dad's basically like arguing against her, like living in isolation yeah. with a lot of security. It's like, well, she's been attacked twice. Yeah. Like that yeah. seems like a good idea. Yeah. And you could not help the first time around. No, dad. he was especially he was, useless. Yeah, he was very useless. He was just tied up in a closet. Yeah. Not even a metaphor. <laughs> It wasn't even our, our Kelly situation. No. <laughs> Thank God. You guys are creep. It's true. But so what happens on the set of this Hollywood film is that all the actors start to get murdered. Wait, is Ray Donovan's girlfriend one of the actors on the movie? No, I think she's just a... She's an, a she, bonus murder. Yeah, she's a bonus murder. <laughs> okay. Because like there is another blonde girl who's murdered like almost Jenny McCarthy. Oh, right. Yeah, that's right. Another fixture from the 90s. Yeah. 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 Was she – she wasn't like a horror movie person. No. No, no. But apparently she turned down a part in uh, Scary Movie to do the part in Scream 3. Oh. Well, that's probably oh, that's right because Scary Movie was happening yeah, right around was, this time movie too. was 2000, yeah. Interesting. So that mm. – which came out first, do you know? I believe Scream 3 came out first earlier in the year in 2000 and I think Scary Movie came out in the summer of that year. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. We meet all the actors who are like, they all have like mishmash names of actual celebrities. Like there's Angelina Tyler mm-hmm. and Jennifer. Uh, Tom Prince. Yeah. Zed. Yeah. I, the thing that really bothers me about this movie, because I do like a lot of the ideas behind it. Mm-hmm. I like even making it a Hollywood satire yeah. as the setting. Mm-hmm. But just the movie making felt so phony to me. Like even the internal logic of like, like Parker Posey's in this and she's yes. great. Oh yeah. Highlight. But even like Highlight. her character, like Gail refers to her as like a, you know, made for TV actress or like a, you know, a D lister yeah. or something. But then she also said like, Oh, Brad Pitt just broke up with you yeah, or something. And seemingly seriously. I think she was trying to start shit with Jennifer Aniston. Oh, I thought they were oh, joking. They were best friends. But, yeah, it probably was like a meta nod to that. Yeah. But in the world of the movie, it's like, well, why would she be a D-list actor? But she's also dating Brad Pitt. Like, Yeah. The other thing that I thought was weird was like 
We see when Jenny McCarthy gets murdered, we see the production offices for the company making Stab. And it's that's all they make. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's literally just the Stab office. Like, is that how movies work? Uh, they Like, a company just makes – the only thing I can think of is, like, Lucasfilm. It's Lucas like legal liability or something. Or something where, like, they they're like the Lucasfilm of B-horror movies because they have all these props and things and everything says Stab. We bought this mask already. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're in production, you know. It's I don't yeah, know. I didn't. That, they're that, super. That didn't make me question so much. Yeah. There, I had other questions about this film. Mine is mainly about like the internal business workings <laughs> of this one company. <laughs> <laughs> like, how was Roman finding time to direct this film while he was doing all the other stuff? Oh yeah, with spoiler alert. Well, yeah. I, I wasn't spoiling it yet. The guy I'm, from I'm Felicity is the killer. Whoa! Yeah. Wow. Big surprise. That guy sucked. He was in bad. this movie? Yeah. Yeah, he wasn't great. He, like, I, I get the character that he's supposed to be playing as sort of like a whiny, entitled, sort of mamby-pamby director, but he is just, like, awful. But, yeah, we do find out he eventually comes back in a big way. Yeah, we'll um, get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. First, they start, like, killing off the actors, and there's, like, a whole bunch of stuff about them, like, the actors worrying about who's going to get killed next because of who dies next in the script. But it all sort of seems like a diversion because I don't care about any of those people. Mm-hmm. Well, also, is that how it works? Because they say uh, they're being killed off the way they are in, in the, the film. scripts. Yeah. I guess that's like stab three. Yes. So there's no way for us to know like – No. Like I remember it as being like they're getting killed off like they were in the original killings. Or is that the fourth that's one? That's the second one. Oh, the second one. Ah, it's so confusing. Yeah. Um, and so in this third one, they're getting killed um, killed off the way they were in the script. But as a couple of them drop hints to uh, the beginning quarter of the film, uh, they are changing the script constantly. They're always yeah. getting new pages. So it's not even they really know and we don't really know. So it's still kind of a – that's the only pattern they can discern. The other thing I hate about this movie – or I shouldn't say hate but feels different mm. – and doesn't always work for me. Uh, well, obviously, Jane Silent Bob. Yes. Yeah. Which also, I didn't know this. Wes Craven has a cameo in that scene. He's part I of that tour that. group. Oh, you yeah. know No, no, I just noticed it this time around. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. I never noticed because I was so distracted by <laughs> Jane Silent Bob. But uh, the other thing that is weird to me about this movie is a lot of the scenes with uh, the killer are kind of action scenes. They don't feel that horror-like right. to me. Like, he blows up a house at one point yeah. to kill people. Yeah. He, uh, like, he gets into a real, like, fisticuffs with Patrick well, Warburton I, I think point. you have to remember that, like, uh, one of the things about Scream is each time it's a different person behind the mask or different people behind the mask. So each killer is going to have different techniques or ways of feeling. But I've always felt that the Scream franchise have, have done these sequences with a lot more action. Even though there's blood and gore and guts, they do have a certain amount of athleticism behind them. But They're teen horrors. Teens are young and full of vigor. Yeah. You know, they can like run from a killer and fight back a bit. If a killer came after us, we would be like, ah, just take our lives. <laughs> I would be. I mean, Leo Schreiber didn't do that, but, you know, he's been working out. Yeah. 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 He was ripped. Well, let's get back to the further goings on of Scream 3 after this break. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We're back. We're talking about Scream 3 with Alexandra West from the Faculty of Horror and Books. (laughs) You might know her from books. (laughs) Been to the library lately, bitch. (laughs) I wasn't calling anybody in particular a bitch and... Why'd you look at me when you said it? <laughs> well, we're talking about Scream 3. We're at the point where they're killing all of the actors playing actors. Yeah. Right, yeah. And also on the set are Gail Weathers because she's snooping around and Dewey? fucking Dewey. Yeah. That's right. Even his name is awful. And his mustache. <laughs> yeah. He's got that like 30s Miami private eye mustache. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he goes – he sticks with that through all the movies yeah. too. Like, he that's never, kind of his thing. Yeah. 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 That's impressive. 
his commitment to that mustache. Ooh. We also find out because, like we were just saying, like their relationship never works out, but mm-hmm. they keep getting back together. We find out that part of the reason why they broke up before was she got a job offer at sixty minutes, and he didn't want to move out of their shitty small town that's famous for murder. Yep. <laughs> like, yeah. Why? Why? That's just I seems objectively murder. terrible. But, but Jam, you have to stay somewhere to make it better. You can't just always run away. No, I run away. All right. As soon as this podcast starts to sour, I'm out the door. <laughs> no, I. But it just seemed like we're, we're supposed to kind of side with him with all things Gale a lot of the time, and with yeah. that, it just seems so ridiculous to me. Like, yeah, that's like a huge job opportunity. Like, 60 minutes would be amazing. Yeah, you'd be lucky to be Gail Weathers' assistant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other weird thing about her character or their thing is that, like, she seems like. Like, is she supposed to be, like, a bad person at the beginning of this movie? She's, like, a bad person at the beginning of every film, and she constantly has a really, really similar redemption arc like, across seems, all of them. Because at the beginning, she tells everybody, you've got to be bloodthirsty. You've got to go out there and kill for your stories. And then, like, yeah, she shows up on the set. But that's, like, really the extent of it, right? Yeah. And she's like, you know, now I'm, now I'm nice. Yeah. I'm Courtney yeah. Cox. Yeah. It's kind of like her Arca- Her arcs are kind of like the Jurassic Park movies where they always think dinosaurs are a good idea <laughs> at the start of the movie. And then by the end, they're like, oh, no, I, should, I shouldn't do that. Like she always thinks David Arquette is a good idea at the beginning of the movie. Well, no, it's the reverse. Oh, right. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Reverse Jurassic Park. <laughs> Classic reverse Jurassic Park relationship. <laughs> well, so the thing about the, these murders is that he keeps on leaving behind this headshot of Sidney Prescott's mom. And I forgot to mention that he keeps on like asking about Sidney. Even when he's killing Ray Donovan, he's like, tell me where Sidney is. Where's Sidney? It's in Australia, mate. Eh? <laughs> eh? Well, also, like, that's another thing that feels less. I mean, none of these movies are super scary, but it just felt a little like Batman villainy that he started leaving like clues, like the Riddler or something. Like he's leaving these headshots. And also he's just leaving them on the ground. Like it's a good thing his clues didn't blow away. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't put like a rock or something. Also the way – It's Hollywood. There's probably headshots blowing in the wind down every street. Also the way they discover like one of the headshots and they look at it and go, that's that building. And it's the most like anonymous (laughs) building. I – I don't like it's absolutely absurd. Like yeah. there's nothing remarkable about this building that would be like, oh my god, it's got that weird awning with the <laughs> spike yeah, yeah. through it. That's how we know it's this building. Like that sidewalk looks familiar. Yeah. <laughs> hey, there's handprints in it. <laughs> well, yeah, because also this is a great scene because once you kind of get on board with the jokiness yeah. of it, there yeah. are some really funny straight up jokes, and one of them is they try to find out why Sydney's mother is in the headshots, uh, her backstory about being an actress. Mm-hmm. They go into the studio archives run by Carrie Fisher. Yeah. <laughs> but not Carrie Fisher. No. But it is actually Carrie Fisher. Because she has like a great joke where she's like, I was up for Princess Leia, but they gave it to the person who had sex with George Lucas. <laughs> It was funny. It was really. That is funny. It's a super like acerbic scene. And I think it speaks a lot to like the three women who are in the scene because Courtney Cox is Gail Weathers and Parker Posey as As the actress who plays uh, Jennifer Jolie who's playing Gail Weathers. Anyway, the three of them with Carrie Fisher playing a kind of weird, sad version of herself. And it's, (laughs) it's it's actually a really like a wonderful scene. And I just want like a whole movie of these three, which I will never get now. Every face in here. I got a respect for the unknown actor. They're looking for Marine Roberts. They're never gonna find her. Rena Reynolds, they will. Rena Reynolds. Stage name. You should talk, Judy Jurgenstern. I think the sad version was the real version. Yeah. Sadly. <laughs> <laughs> but she's she's really funny. It did make me wonder if. Because we've kind of alluded to there was no real script for this movie. Yeah. Like Kevin Williamson wrote an outline they didn't use. And then Bob Weinstein got frustrated that they were – they weren't putting out a screen movie fast enough. So he he hired this guy Aaron Kruger. Mm, no relation to Freddie. I think I thought it was a pseudonym when I was a kid because it's a Wes Craven movie. It just <laughs> seemed like – but no, that was yeah, – Wes, Wes Craven's like – do I know your dad? <laughs> but he'd written like one or two movies and, and got called in. He thought it was for like a punch-up job. Yep. And yeah. he's like, where's the script? And they're like, no, it's, it's all you. 
And I mean, part of the reason why there was no Kevin Williamson script was because of the Columbine shootings. Right. That's right. Because yeah, they, there was the outline for that one all took place in the high school and Matthew Lillard was in it. Yeah, and they were going to – it was going to be like um, this kind of cult who was obsessed with Sydney and killing and the killings that had preceded them. And uh, they were going to reenact a lot of it. And it was uh, – apparently Matthew Lillard has gone on a few podcasts and alluded to this. They're always going on podcasts. Oh, yeah, I heard podcast. him say that he got paid for Scream 3. It's interesting if he got paid for it because they apparently like they drafted something with him showing up at the very end, having survived the events of the first film, and he was having masterminded the whole thing. And it oh, never came weird. to fruition because Dimension got really scared off after the Columbine shootings, as many horror films of that time and subsequently yeah. did. Not a lot of people wanted to see stuff to do with teens and death after that. Yeah. And so then they scrapped it. And to Rob's point, Bob Weinstein was like, I want a Scream movie and I want it now because um, Scream was released Christmas 96. Scream 2 was Christmas 97. And then Christmas 98 was a little film called The Faculty, which I believe we've talked about in my first yeah. time on the yeah, show all right. those years ago. And it was the beginning of the end. That if you want to talk about death now for like a '90s teen horror movement, for that sure. actually did quite badly box office wise. And then the film, and then Scream Three wasn't ready for Christmas '99. They kind of released it early 2000s. So it's you know it's it's a it's a shit show. Like it's a shit show in terms like the fact that they actually cobbled together a semi coherent film yeah. with some interesting messages in it is really impressive. And Aaron Kruger would go on to write the remake of The Ring. Yeah. Did several things. And I actually just saw his name today. Apparently he wrote the new Dumbo film that Tim Burton oh. is uh, directing. Interesting. Yeah. Also, we should mention that at the same time uh, as this came out, he was writing another classic, Reindeer Games. <laughs> uh. Well, yeah, I do kind of – it does make me rethink some of it that he – was able to like he had six weeks to write it. He oh, was yeah. writing it on the set. Yeah. Well, but they uh, said that, and from what I read in the IMDb trivia, that there was a lot of problems with it because he didn't necessarily have like a great grasp at the characters and like what they were actually like in mm-hmm. the other films. That was one of the main reasons why Wes Craven had to sort of rewrite. Everything And it does seem like Kruger has sort of like distanced himself or at least he's like wants to be sure that he's not giving credit for somebody well, they, else's decision. They also brought in another writer because they also said that basically Bob Weinstein, if he liked a writer, he would also like move him around yeah. from project to project. So like one day they called in and were like, hey, does Aaron have those pages? And they're like, oh, Aaron's not on this movie anymore. He's doing something else now. <laughs> Probably Reindeer Games. So <laughs> – they had to bring someone else in. I can't remember her name, but she did say the first thing she wrote was that dream sequence with the mother. <laughs> oh, man. Well, is the, like, relationship between Sydney and her mother or, like, the guilt, is it, like, a big part of the other movies? Because it, like, hits ultimately hard in this. Ultimately, it is. I mean, ultimately, it's kind of something that I find that simmers through the whole first two films because ultimately all the events in the Scream films tie back to – Sydney's mother's yeah. double life. And, and yeah, in the first in the film, it's her discovering what the truth actually is. Right. And then some of the reckoning that happens in the second film. And then it's this kind of survivor's trauma, PTSD, that kind of keeps reinflicting itself on her. And I think the the fear of never having truly known a parent who she thought she did. Right. Um, and being really scared of that. Yeah. Um, it's so weird, though, because in this movie, the people who are investigating it have nothing to do with no. it. They're, like, kind of friends with Sydney because yeah. they went through this murdering thing. But there's, like, almost no dramatic tension because Sydney's mom doesn't mean anything to uh, Gail Weathers <laughs> yeah, and Dewey. I do think there's something a bit that I've always found a bit weird with – I don't remember the fourth one, but the first three certainly mm-hmm. with the mom because, like, obviously you talk about a lot uh, on your show and, and it's a very evident that a lot of horror movies – especially with female protagonists, are about like this sexual awakening mm-hmm. or sometimes resisting a sexual awakening where the the threat is kind of like a, even a metaphor for yeah. sex. That's like explicitly part of the first movie. Yes. Like they talk about that. Yeah. But then they also have – so they have like Sydney purposefully have sex. So it's not yeah. like this thing where she's virginal and safe. But then they also have this reveal be that like her mother – they just kind of like shame her mother yeah. for having an affair yeah. throughout the movies. Like even in the second one, the motivation for the killer yeah. is also her mother had affairs. And this one. And this one. <laughs> like it's 
I don't know. Like, I find that kind of weird. Yeah. Well, I actually find it like a real – I find Scream 3 to be quite a condemnation of um, the way uh, female sexuality is treated um, within society and, and just a condemnation of the way it is judged and uh, the trauma that happens within it. So, I, I mean, ultimately what is revealed in Scream 3 – Okay. Go, go. Can I? Can I take it? Yeah. Let's just do the killer. Because there's like lots of – there's just everyone gets murdered. There's a lot of back and forth. People are running around. McDreamy's in it? McDreamy's in oh, it. yeah. Have we not mentioned uh, oh. Detective McDreamy? <laughs> he looks so young and handsome in this. It is And none of his suits fit. None of them. No. I thought it was like a David Byrne thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's ultimately revealed that the killer, there is only one killer behind all of these killings, and it is the director, Roman, right. played by Scott Foley. And he's killing everyone because he is Sidney Prescott's half-brother. Yeah. And to root back around, mm. there's all this stuff. They find out that John Milton, who's directing Stab 3, was a director of all these schlocky oh, 70s films. Right. That Sidney's mom was in. And during this time, he says, it was the 70s. There was all these, like, parties where essentially, like, women were pimped out for the roles. Yeah. yeah. Sidney's mom was raped. And I guess that is where Roman comes from. Yeah, and and John Milton, we should say, is played by rewatchability favorite Lance Henriksen. Oh yes, my gosh! Yeah, in a in a solid like kind of small supporting big cameo role, I'd say. Yeah, and you know he talks about you know as Rob was saying, like it was the seventies, it was this, it was that, but it wasn't good enough for her, and she wouldn't play ball, and it was just. Like, Ugh. it's fucking terrifying. I it's mean, terrifying. I felt sick to my stomach the first time I watched it. Yeah. And subsequently, it's like, God, why is no one talking about this film as someone, as something that really tackles abuse of power, abuse of female bodies, uh, all of these things that are going on in this yeah. film? And they're not necessarily explicitly dealt with, but they're a huge motivating factor within the film. And I think Lance Henriksen's little monologue, which, you know, I'm sure one of 10 writers wrote, actually is. <laughs> It's it quite damning to it the is. whole Hollywood industry. Well, also, like, the thing – part of the reason why that scene is, I think, so crazy because this John Milton character – I mean, he's the director of these movies. We're sort of already projecting a Wes Craven sort of surrogate into it. And later there's, like, a joke where one of the actresses says, like, I didn't sleep with John Milton to die with a bunch of B-list celebrities. It's – very strange that, like, the director is, in a way, implicating himself in this whole everything. Like, yeah. Now it's also kind of a Roger Corman figure. Yeah. And Roger Corman is in it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But also, obviously, there's the Weinstein of it all. Yeah. yeah. Like, everybody talks about, like, there were whispers and some people, you know, maybe knew some stuff, but a lot of people didn't know. And it's hard to sort of say who knew what. But just with everything that has come out in the last year, and it has been a crazy year. Yeah. Right? Somebody was commenting that last year Kevin Spacey hosted the Tonys. Right. Yeah. yeah. So a lot has changed. Yeah. But, like, now this scene, like, it's crazy to watch because, first of all, like, it really does pull the whole movie into, like, something far more serious. Yeah. But also, like, something that resonates particularly loudly at this particular moment. And in a way, it seems like are the authors sort of admitting to some sort of culpability in, like, the environment or, like, how are they framing it? Are they just using it as a cheap device? Because that line about the I slept with John Milton, it can also be taken, like, there's a line where they say, oh, the women knew what they were doing. Yeah. Well, they also kind of disregard him as a suspect after they find that out like that somehow acquits him in the minds of like Courtney Cox because at one point like someone suggests he could be the killer and they're like he's just gross he's not a killer it's like what why would you think it's not like a good reason why he wouldn't also be a killer if you find out one terrible thing (laughs) there's one terrible secret therefore you can't have two But then the climax of the film uh, takes place at his house so there is a lot of suspicion around him kind of leading up to that until he gets But to go back to what I was saying about Sidney's mom, like, I do feel like this movie almost tries to, like, fix that narrative Mm -hmm. by, like, actually where I thought she was kind of, like, dehumanized in a way in those other movies. This movie very much tries to give her an origin story about, like, how she endured this trauma. 
completely. Yeah. I, I think it was actually quite interesting because I think if you hadn't had that narrative, there would be this big dangling thread to, you know, the first three films of, you know, it, it's hard to wrap that up. So I think by doing it and getting away from maybe the original kind of math the Lillard cult situation, even though, again, this film is very flawed, it actually becomes a bit more of, um, it's much more about a intimacy of growing up, of really realizing not only who your parents are, but about sexuality, about violence, about all of these things that are grappled with in daily life. And now that we're starting to talk about a lot more openly. So I think that's why in 2000, and even watching it a few years ago, I was like, holy shit, they're, they're saying shit in this film that we don't like to talk about. That yeah. feels like, and it's a big budget mainstream film. And, and that felt very like, whoo, it's exciting. It's exciting to see that. And but yeah. do, do you wonder if the guy who wrote the movie, who worked for the Weinsteins, who yeah. was only on this movie because he was closely associated mm-hmm. with at least Bob Weinstein, do you think he put this in there because he knew or had heard rumors about what was going on. Well, from what I understand, it was a pretty open secret. But again, it doesn't sound uncommon for Hollywood. You know, there's yeah. so many stories, especially, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, yeah, like the they're 80s, almost 90s of this stuff happening. I think we are just in – I think Weinsteins are interesting because they were like the patron saints of quote-unquote independent cinema and leading this charge and being possibly more progressive, donating yeah. and, and doing all this stuff, bullies and assholes. They do have an interesting narrative. So I wouldn't be surprised if he'd heard something and wanted to talk about the Weinsteins in a kind of inadvertent way. But I think also this is a narrative that has existed in Hollywood. I think it's a narrative that has existed in places where there's huge power discrepancies or even small power discrepancies. So it just is something that needed to be talked about. And it's an interesting way to kind of bookend this trilogy. If we want to refer to this as a trilogy. Well, they do several times. They do. (laughs) As, you know, the first one about Sydney losing her virginity and the, you know, and the fear and the anxiety that goes with that, but then also the realized fear of like, oh my God, the guy who I lost it to is a fucking psychopath who raped and murdered my mother. And then the book ending it with understanding where her own mother's trauma comes from and seeing how the two are linked and how they are both kind of products of violence. Yeah. Yeah. I so. like that. I like that a lot. Where me too. this movie loses me mm. is the further revelation that the guy from Felicity, whose name I can't remember, Scott Foley, orchestrated the whole thing, meaning that he put Matthew yeah. Lillard and Skeet Ulrich up to the original murder. I he was like it, the architect of it yeah, all. Yeah, I think it kind of works thematically as like Roman's greatest film was actually life. Yeah, I mean, if he like was directing yeah. character yeah. in the yeah. other ones, maybe. I, I think I think it works better in theory than it did in yeah. this execution, and I'm. I actually don't mind it, and I almost wish had it had more time, more breathing room, maybe like better a second actor. draft. Well, I like, you know, I never thought of it this way, but I heard the screenwriter talking about it and he was saying like the idea was they thought it was funny that because in the first movie they blame movies yeah. for inspiring them to kill. And that obviously seems ridiculous. But yeah. then they thought it would be funny if they revealed that actually it was like Hollywood. Right. Like manipulating them. them. Yeah. 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 Which, yeah, on paper I think is interesting, but I didn't, didn't quite work for Yeah, me. it doesn't quite work in this film, but like interest, like to write about it theoretically, I, I, it's, you know, whew. Gosh. And yeah. let's talk about this guy Roman for a minute because he uh-huh. he's Sydney's half brother. Yeah, it's hard to become like a famous director or like Is a it? working director. He somehow works himself up to this level of being a a director that could get this job, mm-hmm. and somehow gets the job on the movie yep. that's about his family. Coincidentally, he probably I, had a great pitch. Yeah, <laughs> that seemed not to be the other thing we haven't talked about that we alluded to is he has like one of those vocal distortion things yes. that is yeah. basically magic. Yes. It can not just, not just do the ghost face voice, but also any voice he wants. Any voice. Yeah. And they treat it like magic. Cause when Gail finds it, she's like, he stole our voices. Like, <laughs> like he's some kind of monster. A little mermaid. <laughs> In reality, every call would just be him sounding like craft work. Or <laughs> yeah, right. sounding like craft work again. <laughs> like if he sold that technology, he would be a millionaire. <laughs> but he just uses it for these scroungy little murders. It's so stupid. Well, they didn't have startups at the time. That's true. <laughs> he's but he's like, he's like a A-list, maybe not A-list, but he's a successful director. 
He invented the world's greatest <laughs> machine. But, you know, this is the problem. Like, Hollywood is still doing this. Like, you direct a small indie feature, then it gives you this whole franchise, which is way too big for you to handle, and you crack under pressure, yeah. kill all your actors. That's true. Yeah. In, in, the more, in the 2018 version, he would start killing everybody because he, like, fucked up a Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, they had anyone, to bring Ron Howard in for Stab 3. <laughs> has anyone checked on those guys from Han Solo movie? <laughs> I'm sure they're fine. But the other thing we didn't really talk about is the Jamie Kennedy cameo, which is just so sad. Oh, my God. Because he dies in the second movie. Yeah. And then it's this crazy scene where somebody hands them a video. His and it's younger like, sister. It's Heather Matarazzo. Yeah. Yeah. Who is in every movie in the 90s. And then we – what was she in after that? Maybe an episode of our, Frasier our or something? And minds. Yeah. Well, so why not? Because she's his sister, and she's supposed to be another kind of quirky, film-loving person. Why not just have her, like, deliver that? Instead, we have this whole convoluted thing where Randy videotaped himself. I totally agree. It would have been so much more fun to have another film nerd come in and yes. explain something. Yeah. But apparently they thought Jamie Kennedy tested well or would they would like to see him again. I don't know. It's it's a very odd shoehorned moment. Some of it's so bad. Like the my favorite part is where like his little brother comes knocking on the door and then he's like, 15 minutes, Paul. And then Courtney Cox gives it like a little mmm. <laughs> he's dead. The reason I'm here is to help you so that my death will not be in vain. That my life's work will help save some other poor soul from getting mutilated. If this killer does come back and he's for real, there are a few things that you got to remember. Is this simply another sequel? Well, if it is, same rules apply. But here's a critical thing. If you find yourself dealing with an unexpected backstory and a preponderance of exposition, then the sequel rules do not apply because you are not dealing with a sequel. You are dealing with the concluding chapter of a trilogy. Is this just recording videos in case he dies? It's like... <laughs> You remember, that movie? That? remember that movie, My Life with Michael Keaton? It was like that, but stupid. I thought that's what we were doing with these podcasts. Yes. <laughs> that's true. I remember Blaine said that once. He was like, you know, if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, this is the only way your infant son will know you. <laughs> oh, my God. Your opinions on screen three. Wow. What a lucky child. And that's, why, that's why Blaine's not here this week. We, we threw him out <laughs> for comments like that. Yeah, but also if one of us shows up dead next week, it was Blaine. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that cameo was just set. Oh, I did someone, I think it was the editor was saying like they shot a version of that scene without Heather Matarazzo where Randy's sister was a contortionist. So what? Because she came in through a tennis racket. I think they, <laughs> I think they were so not confident in Jamie Kennedy's abilities as an actor that they had her making contortions with her body. <laughs> While he was describing the rules of a trilogy and they would cut back to her periodically. <laughs> I'm not making that up. She actually got rescheduled that day because she had to go to the gong show. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that almost happened. That part yeah. sucked. They really didn't know what this movie was, which is why I kind of appreciate it now. Is like, it's, a, I mean, it's a movie. Yeah. yeah. You can watch it. It takes a little bit of time to get together, but I think – it does sort of pick up steam towards the end, especially when it gets fucking real. Yeah. And I, I do have to say another thing. I know you guys are kind of down on Scott Foley in this film, but I actually quite like him in this film because he reminds me of all the whiny fucking men I have encountered on the internet. Yeah, we don't and like him because he reminds them of us. Yeah. <laughs> they should have added the detail that he was also John Landis's son. <laughs> <laughs> That would make perfect sense. Oh, uh, it's getting too close. Too <laughs> close. In fact, we should call the cops. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't mind him, actually. That was just yeah. Rob. I thought he was all right. Yeah. No, I, I thought, you know, just that part where, like, uh, Sydney's just yelling at him, like, take some fucking responsibility. And I was like, do you know how many times in my life I just want to yell that at men? <laughs> so many. Now's your chance. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go do it outside. I don't want to blow the mics. Okay. <laughs> Well, let's go around the circle, triangle, the trilogy, and uh, <gasps> say whether or not we thought this movie was rewatchable. I'm going to start with you, Jan, because I think I know what Alex is going to say. Uh, I don't know. I 
don't mind this movie. I I think it actually has two terrific set pieces in it. Mm. I love the scene where Sydney, except for the Creed poster. Yes, I love the scene where Sydney goes into her old house yeah. and it's that weird, and she's all alone in the soundstage and gets attacked. I loved that scene, and think the whole movie is almost worth it just for that. And I also liked before the kind of final showdown when they're all in that mansion at the end mm-hmm. and are kind of getting picked off. I thought that was really good, good mansion. Yeah, and. I mean, I don't know. I would take out some of the – oh, I know what I was going to allude to earlier. Even though like some of the cameos are uh, not so great like Jay and Silent Bob and right. some of them are OK like Carrie Fisher. Where's Bill and Ted? Yeah. <laughs> I wondered if part of the reason why they were filling it with cameos of people like that is because there was no script and they're like, well, if yeah. we get someone funny in, yeah. we can have like four or five minutes of improv. Just see who was hanging out by craft services yeah. and just like <laughs> mm-hmm. push them in front of the camera so they do something. Do yeah, exactly. another like four reels of Jay and Silent Bob? Probably. <laughs> so, I don't know. Like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of Scream 3. Kevin Smith is just going to get ripped one night and edit that together. <laughs> And the hearing about, like, the Kevin Williamson version didn't sound any better. No, no. Like, I think his version also, like, there was the cult, Matthew Lillard comes back, and also it's revealed that, like, no one died. Yeah. That it was, like, all a prank. Yeah. I um I I pulled that quote from Matthew Lillard in my for my book and you didn't like the amount of times I typed it out and rewrite it I was like this still doesn't quite make sense it's a bit like uh, an old slasher film called uh, April Fool's Day right um, yeah, yeah 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 which spoiler for a film from 1981 and they kind of I feel like they pulled parts of that for the fourth one I would agree with that yeah yeah mm-hmm. but it sounded silly I don't know I kind of appreciate how this movie got thrown together. Uh, it's not great, but I do like parts of it. I'm going to say mildly rewatchable. Okay. I don't mind it. And also because I do like four. Yeah. I think it's like, it's a it's fine a good, movie to watch as you're, as you're it watching It wraps up enough narrative things to allow the people who survive to become the next generation that has to grapple with stuff in, in Scream 4. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, I, I do want to mention before we wrap up that uh, Patrick Dempsey has my favorite line in the movie. Oh. When Sydney asks, what's your favorite scary movie? And he leans in really close and goes, my life. <laughs> <laughs> The Michael Keaton movie? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about you, Alex? I, I think I know what you You know what? I'm going to actually steal your answer. I'm going to give it like a soft recommend, like a 60% recommend. Yeah. You know, I would say if if you have – if you love Scream and you maybe have kind of murky memories of this one, revisit it and revisit it with an open heart and an open mind. Yeah. Because uh, it does, as J.M. was saying, have some really great set pieces. I don't think we've talked enough about – how amazing Parker Posey is in this Oh, film. she's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, the chemistry between her and Courtney Cox yeah. is better than the chemistry between Courtney Cox and David Arquette. It's, I would, I, yes. Give I, show. I would love that. And I think that's kind of all you have to say. A lot of people defend Scream 3 because of Parker Posey. And I think her scene, she just has so much energy and it just kind of really lifts the film. But then there are also some really great set pieces. I think um, the final, uh, uh, the ending to the film um, with like the revelations about Sydney's mother, the revelations about Roman and Sydney's confrontation of him where she just like fights back and pushes him are really like, they feel quite empowering and quite bold. Even in this day and age, I, I don't get to see a lot of that. So there, and, but well, there's, you know, there are some really murky parts. Again, that dream sequence is rough. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm going to say like a soft recommend if, if you haven't seen it in a long time, if you have vague memories of it, give it a rewatch. Um, it, it is actually a pretty easy watch, I found. I'm also going to go with the mildly rewatchable. It took me a while to get into it, but I did find that like once it sort of tied itself together, I was like uh, – I, I did sort of find it more interesting. And I did like the way that it resolved the whole trilogy because I didn't really remember anything sort of going in about the story or how it was set up or who the characters were. But by the end, it definitely made the third one seem like it was important mm-hmm. and like – not just like a, another add-on to the franchise to make another couple hundred thousand dollars. I mean, it probably made more than that. <laughs> Do you know how much movies make? <laughs> I was probably going by like some Canadian film's box office. <laughs> So I, I do think it's mildly rewatchable, and I think it's worth a rewatch, particularly for its uh, relevance today, because there aren't – I mean, there are probably lots of movies that are going to respond to 
the yeah. Harvey Weinstein Brian thing, the Me Too thing. Yeah, I know David Mamet's working on his play about the Harvey Weinstein thing. Doesn't it take place at TIFF? It's a Brian De Palma. Oh, one. that's the Brian De Palma. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll be in the background waiting in line for something or an actor playing me. <laughs> it was a movie I was at one time. <laughs> Patrick Dempsey. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm going to say mildly rewatchable. I think there's some good stuff in it, and it's worth checking out. And I, I'm pretty sure that everybody else except me did enjoy the screen films when they first came out. It was a real cultural phenomenon. So I think it's, I think it still mostly works. Is that TV show still on Scream? Yeah, I think so. Is it? Mm. I never watched it. I never watched it either because they didn't shell out the money. For the Ghost mask, face, yeah. yeah. I was like, yeah, I don't want to watch that. Yeah. yeah, I was only watching it for the mask. Yeah. Oh, I, you know, I didn't mention this because it hadn't happened yet when we did our screen podcast. But uh, for an old job, I covered like the Toronto Fan Expo. And I went to like, they had a screen panel. Were you at that? No, I wasn't. But it I was heard like, about it. Uh, it was Nev Campbell, Ske- Skeets. Skeet. And the guy who did the voice of the ghost face killer. And so, yeah, he can talk like – he's like a voiceover guy. So he has like a normal voice, but then he can slip right into this. And he did it in all the movies. That's good. And uh, one of the first questions, they were like, hey, what was it? Because he's kind of like this kind of round, portly, older fellow. I think he had a mustache, (laughs) uh, maybe a beard. And the moderator was like, what was it like when you like first met each other? They were like, oh, we actually just met each other for the first time backstage like five minutes ago. And the host is like, what? It's like, yeah, no, Wes never wanted us to meet. He was on set doing the voice over the phone, but we never got to meet him. They're like meeting at that comic convention was the only time they'd seen what this guy looks like. He kept us apart until he died. Oh, Oh, R.I.P. Wes Craven. Well, he's he's like a scary person, Wes Craven was. His last name was Craven. You're thinking of Lance Henriksen's Wes Craven like character. Yes. Uh, Alex, where can people get your book? You can get it um, at McFarlandBooks.com. You can get it at Amazon. It's on Amazon Prime. So mm. and give the title again for people. Sure. It's the 1990s teen horror cycle, Final Girls and a New Hollywood Formula. So yeah, you can get it almost anywhere books are sold online. I know it's in stores in the U.S. So if you have U.S. listeners, Barnes & Noble, I think Walmart's carrying it, Target's Ooh. carrying it. But yeah, it's I bet American my mom's book. scanning it right now. <laughs> It's an American publisher. So, um, yeah. And if you are interested in the book and you just can't swing it financially right now, consider uh, requesting it at your local library. Mm-hmm. And you can check me out. Um, I'm one of the hosts of the Faculty of Horror podcast. So we talk about horror films from an academic perspective. And, you know, we tried to make it fun and easy. And, you know, we yell about feminism. So, yeah. Yeah. You should get Scott Foley on and you can just yell it at him. Uh, that just sounds like a really good Friday night. <laughs> hey, guys, Scott Foley's here again. <laughs> he wants to watch Felicity. Uh, we we're already watching fucking Jamie Kennedy experiment with Jamie Kennedy. I guess we'll watch that after. And Twitter, you're on the Twitter? Yeah, I'm at Scare Alex. Cool. And we're Rewatchability. You can find us on Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe and you can rate us and tell us uh, if you like what we're doing. Hopefully you do. I think it's out of five stars. Please do that. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. You can pledge a few dollars on Patreon. And also don't forget to check out our screening at the Royal when we're talking about My Girl. And anything else, Jim? Nope. Oh. Yeah, you can get a rewatchability T-shirt if you go to tpublic.com. Just search rewatchability and you'll find them. Yeah, you can wear them under your creepy ghost face killer costume. <laughs> It'd be great publicity for us. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.